Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Ontario Premier Doug Ford is expected to announce cuts to public health and child care at a meeting in Ottawa today. We'll get all the details. China's embassy in Ottawa has told Canada to stop meddling in Hong Kong's affairs. Charles Burton, associate professor at Brock University, joins us. And Elections Canada has warned groups like Environmental Services that discussing climate change could be a partisan issue. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Municipal leaders from right across the province are gathered in Ottawa today for the, their annual conference. Uh, the keynote speaker is usually the premier, and today that will be Doug Ford. Of course, he'll be in, addressing the crowd. And uh, the word has leaked out of Ottawa right now that uh, the thrust of Ford's speech uh, today is going to be the reinstatement, really, of those uh, very rather draconian budget cuts that he announced uh, I guess just a couple of months ago. Now, he backtracked on that. He wanted to announce, uh, implement them immediately. Now, apparently, it's going to be January the 1st. Joining us to talk about this is Lloyd Ferguson, the counselor for Ward 12 up in Ancaster, uh, who obviously is going to have to make some pretty tough decisions on this. Lloyd, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Well, thanks for having me on, Bill. I'm up here in beautiful Ottawa right now. Well, and, and I've, I've attended the AMO conference many times, too. This is a, this is a, a great way for people f- that are doing what you do on municipal government uh, to get together and talk about any number of different things, but I would imagine finances and cutbacks and, and and downloading are probably some of the main themes of some of the other members you have talked with. Yeah, and I represent the city of Hamilton on the Ontario, Rural Ontario Municipalities Association, and we met all afternoon yesterday, and Minister Clark, uh, Minister of Municipal Affairs, joined us. And, um, you know, of course, I brought up the uh, potential $20 million cutback in public health, which is going to help the more marginalized in our community and and the only answer he could give me was wait till tomorrow it's good news and uh, christine elliott is on the uh on the stage today too she comes on at um i believe it is uh 10 then the premier comes on at eleven thirty-five, and he's all over the local news here in ottawa this morning that uh uh, there is going to be some good news here, but that remains to be seen. I look forward to maybe speaking to you afterwards and let you know what we actually heard. Yeah, we're going to do a follow-up on this, certainly, because I, everything we've just told you here, I mean, this is being reported by the Canadian press, but uh, unless they've actually got a copy of the speech, they're really just speculating. It, it, it probably sounds legitimate that that's exactly where they're going to go, because when he did decide he was going to hold off on, on retroactively uh, imposing these things. I mean, he did say, look, at it's coming down the road and it's probably going to be in, po- in place for next year. So it's, it, and from that context, Lloyd, this is almost like a, just a reaffirmation uh, of what he told us a couple of months ago. Well, I, I hope it's more than that because, uh, you know, 2020 is not that far away. We're at the, near the end of August now, and we're going to be starting our budget deliberations in uh, mid-November. And, and so this is very close. So even if it takes effect January the 1st, and our, our CFO tells us, Mike Zagarek, that uh, uh, right now the impact before inflation to our tax bill because of these downloads, if we if we decide to pick up and pay for these uh, essential services to the more marginalized in our community, would take the tax rate up 7%. So clearly there's a, a lot of people. There's clerks here. There are, you know, our own um, new city manager is here with me. And uh, uh, there's a lot of elected people here anxious about their 2020 budget and uh, we had great discussions about that yesterday at our rural Ontario uh, uh, representatives that are on that board. There's a, a, a almost a disconnect though that I noticed uh, when I was attending these conferences. You mentioned obviously you're the rural representative, uh, and, and with your agricultural background, that only makes sense. 
But a lot of these policies that provincial governments enact, and you know, including these, but I mean even past governments, uh, sometimes have a very different effect on the rural community than they do on an urban community. They do. You mean the the, the main issue for us outside this uh, transfer payments and what does it really mean is uh, getting uh, broadband in our rural areas because farming is very sophisticated now, and most farmers depend on the internet for weather forecast. You cut hay or do not cut hay. They they depend on it too. You know the the, the uh, combines now record the yield per hectare or whatever grid you want, and that's stored and put in the seed drill for the next spring to know how much fertilizer to apply, and it all happens automatically. But you need the Internet to do that. There's automatic milkers now for the dairy farmers. And so, uh, you know, when hydro came into Ontario, went into all parts of Ontario, when telephone came into Ontario, went to all parts of Ontario. But the the Internet uh, is, you know, we're going through a major installation of uh, high-speed fiber in Ancaster right now, Bell's doing a major, major insulation. And uh, I know it's disruptive, it's digging up our main streets, but uh, for rural, I've met with Bell, and all they're proposing is towers in the rural area fed by high-speed internet. And, and my colleagues here in the rural communities across the province tell me those towers fill up in a matter of months and then they slow right down again. So those that's a, a main issue fishing, fishing are facing the rural community. And, of course, 75% of Hamilton is rural. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've talked about it enough on this program, I think, to make people aware of the fact that uh, that the agri-food uh, business is, is a big business here and a ba- major part of the uh, the Hamilton one, economy. $1.6 in Hamilton alone. Yeah. Uh, I've got to assume, though, Lloyd, at some point during the conversation yesterday uh, with your rural representatives, the uh, the idea of the Greenbelt came up. It did, uh, although it's, it's you know, I think we're all comfortable now that uh, the current government has pulled back on developing part of the green belt. And uh, every poll that's done that I've seen, whether they're, they're polled by the conservatives or the liberals, shows there's over 90% of the population supports the green belt. So we don't sense that's at risk anymore and, and wasn't actually on the agenda to any extent uh, at our all-day meeting yesterday. Um, you know, the bigger issue is these cuts and rural broadband and, you know, in some parts of rural Ontario, there's problems with the, the new extra loud train whistles. That doesn't seem to be an issue in Hamilton. But there's the, you're right, the issues across the province vary in, in the rural communities, as it does in the urban communities, too. Toronto's very different from Hamilton. But this is an opportunity for us all to get together and, and find a common solution. The concern, I guess, from from the green panel is is maybe not so much about what the government gar- may or may not do there, uh, but they have made some revisions to the Planning Act, uh, and and uh, that pretty much gives some developers leeway to appeal to the province if, in fact, they do want to have uh, an incursion in to a greenbelt territory. So, I mean, the, there could be a future battle in, in the you know for a Hamilton Council, for instance, or any other council for that matter, somewhere down the road if somebody decides to t- enact that. Well, the big problem from my perspective uh, with the changes to the Planning Act is they brought back the former OMB. Yeah. Um, the, the Liberals brought in LPAD, Local Property Appeals Tribunal, and now they've dismantled it and gone back to the OMB. So uh, one hearing officer who probably lives in Toronto can overrule 16 elected members. And, of course, we've seen that happen in Ancaster alone when uh, we have a three-floor height restriction in Garner Road. Despite our official plan, despite our secondary plan, um, they went ahead and proved eight floors, and, and all the name of intensification. That seems to be their mandate is pack people in tighter, which can change the character of small communities, especially across our, our, our province. But it, it does have an impact on Hamilton, and, and 
you know, it, it's concerning when um, one hearing officer can overrule us. And the old LPAP formula was the worst they could do was send it back to us to reconsider. Uh, they couldn't overrule us. So it's going to have a major impact on planning. Uh, they're virtually taking it out of the municipality's hands. Which runs contrary to what they had said they were going to do because they wanted to give more power to the municipalities, they said, but they seem to have uh, reversed the, the trend on that. Well, I think there were some promises made during the campaign. You, you saw the Premier come out at one point say he's going to allow part of the green belt uh, to be developed, and of course he didn't realize that was being re- videoed as everybody has a camera in their hands right now. And uh, when that came out, he backed up pretty quick during the campaign that he's not going to allow any of the green belt to be developed. But you, you never know. I mean, different uh, parties have different agendas. You know, I'm standing here at the convention center looking out the, the window at the canal, but it's just the sidewalks are loaded with protesters out here right now. So it's, it's drawing a lot of tension, having, yeah, you know, the uh, premier made it clear last night on the local news is that 100% of his cabinet will be here today to listen. And uh, so this is my opportunity and Jeanette's opportunity to talk to ministers about Hamilton's specific issues. And you don't get uh, that, that face-to-face very often with cabinet ministers or the premier, for that matter, obviously, which is one of the, I think, the huge benefits of a conference like this. Oh, it is. You know, yesterday, the, the, you know, the minister of uh, municipal affairs sat beside me, and, and you've got him alone for an hour. And not alone, but he's, you can chat on and have sidebars during the meeting. You're not supposed to do that, but I took advantage of the opportunity, particularly around our, our health department and the potential cuts that can happen there. And that's why I'm looking very forward to hearing Christine Elia's presentation. She seems like a very capable minister, and um, it's going to be interesting. You know, the whole land, land ambulance issue and the whole Lynn issue, uh, what's that mean to Hamilton? And uh, what's that mean to health care in our community? Uh, what's that mean to our seniors in our community? So I look forward to that, and I'll be able to fill you in on it tomorrow morning if you want me back on your show. Well, yeah, we want to do a follow-up and then and, and obviously get a reaction. One of the jobs that you and, and, and the other representatives, of course, that are attending uh, this conference is to try to impart to the to the government the the message of how these things are actually going to impact. Because, you, you know, when they announce a lot of this stuff, Lloyd, they say, oh, this is going to reduce this by 2 or 3% or this is, but, you know, in other words, they're talking about reducing their cost, their spending. But you have to deal with the impact that it has. In other words, you put the face on it. And we had one of those stories late last week, as, as I know you remember, about the cutbacks that are going to be necessary, possibly anyway, at, at Macassa and at Wentworth Lodge, because you just can't find the money of the, because of the reduced funding that's coming in. That has an impact on, on staff. It has an impact on the, on the patients in places like that. Uh, so it looks good for a government to say we're going to reduce our costs, but you're the ones at the municipal level that are going to have to deal with the, uh, the ramifications of that. Well, the other part of it, too, is you know, after the budget, we were high-fiving that there wasn't really a big impact on municipalities. But then the, the, the little individual uh, announcements afterwards, and now we don't have any details. For example, the land ambulance issue, the whole issue about public health, we're very short on details, so we can't really accurately forecast what the impact is. Our staff have done the best they can to tell us the impact is probably $20 million to us, but until we get those details... We can't do that. So I, I suspect uh, Minister Elliott will come up with some of those details today. Well, that's one of the stories we saw from uh, from the Canadian press. Uh, I don't know what they're reporting up in Ottawa today, but uh, that apparently in this wide-ranging uh, speech that uh, the Premier is going to make today, uh, we're told that he will address the land ambulance issue and get down to some of the finer details on that. So hopefully you're going to get some information on that. 
but and again, one of the frustrations I have as as, a, as a, an observer as a commentator on this, and you certainly must have uh, as an elected official, is the fact that they tend to announce policies and then they say, okay, if you we'll have consultation now. That really kind of is reversed. I'd like to see them do the consultation and and have talks with people like you as elected representatives and then try to formulate policy based on the information you give them. I think they've learned from that, though. I think they're trying to do a better job of consultation before they implement policy change. And, uh, you know, I'm sensing that. But, um, you know, this is an opportunity today to talk to the individual ministers about the issues in Hamilton and and see what, uh, what kind of answers we get on those issues. Is, is there an opportunity here for you to get some clarity about some of the the spending? Because uh, we keep calling these as cuts. It's money that usually the province put forth, and now they're going to either not do it at all or they're going to reduce significantly the, the contributions they're going to make. Uh, and I know we're obviously talking about the impact it's having in our community because this is where we live. But this this is province-wide, and it's going to have a different impact on different communities. I know that to, Toronto, which isn't even represented at AMO anymore, is, is probably going to get hit the hardest on this. Well, they're the biggest population base, and uh, you know, if from my observation, this is my own personal observation, uh, the premier seems to make his decisions based on what he experienced in Toronto, and and my my perception is, and it's just mine, is that he he left that council uh, not impressed by it. You know, you saw him reduce the size of the council uh, right around the nomination period last year, uh, and and he's taken other moves that seems to be. Um, for lack of a better word, punishing the Toronto people because of the personal experiences he saw while he was on council. Once again, that's just my own personal perception based on what I've seen. And um, uh, we'll see how that trickles down to places like Hamilton, Ottawa, and other large urban centres. Well, this is a, this is like a budget day, isn't it? I mean, you know, the people know the protocol. We've explained to them and when there's a federal budget or a provincial budget. Uh, the medias are all there. They're, they're in the lockup, and they're going over this thing. And then, of course, later on in the day, they say, okay, yeah, now here's what it means to you. And they, yeah. that's essentially going to be your job after you listen to what these ministers have to say and what the premier has to say. Uh, you're gonna and you and, and Janet Janet Smith, I'm sure, are going to sit down and say, okay, now ha- here's how it's going to impact Hamilton. Well, there's a bunch of but there's a bunch of follow-up sessions afterwards, and, and we go to the ones that uh, are important to our community, and and that's where we'll pick up on some of the details. Uh, yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, I guess. And uh, we'll do a follow-up interview and discussion with you about this uh, tomorrow, Lloyd, and uh, get the, okay. some some details about exactly what's going on. I know you've got things to attend there, so we'll let you go at this point. Thanks so much for joining can, us can today. Can I just give 10 seconds on sure. another topic? Yeah. Uh, I know I've been on your show a number of times about the Ancaster Arts Centre. Yes. And I've uh, been working on that since 2012. It's very important to our community, and the province cut us back by $3 million, and we run into problems with uh, cost overruns and architect problems where they missed some stuff when they put the budgets together. So uh, we finally went to council for final decision on Friday, and it got approved unanimously. So I'm very appreciative of council coming on side and supporting this project that's so important, not just to Ancaster, but to all of Hamilton. So the project is now a goal. We have a low-bid contractor. The contract will be awarded this week. There's a pre-construction meeting being scheduled for early September, and by mid-late September, we'll in the ground. So there's a good news story that came out of council meeting on Friday, and I just wanted the opportunity to let the people of Hamilton, particularly the people of Ancaster, that after a long wait, you know, the, the community raised was challenged to raise $3 million while well, they raised five, And they were getting impatient that the project was being delayed and not going forward. Well, it now is going forward, and uh, in two years' time, we'll have opening night. Looking forward to that. Uh, and uh, obviously further discussions about the impact it's going to have on the greater community, too. Lloyd, thanks again. We'll talk again tomorrow. 
Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. That's uh, Ancaster Councillor, Ward 12 Councillor uh, Lloyd Ferguson uh, and in Ottawa for the Association of Municipalities of Ontario annual conference. And uh, we'll see what the Premier's got to say a little bit later on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hundreds of thousands of anti-government protesters rallied peacefully in Hong Kong again on Sunday. This is the 11th week what has often been violent demonstrations uh, in the uh, financial hub. China's embassy in Ottawa has told Canada, though, to basically back off, uh, to stop meddling in Hong Kong's affairs. That was the day after the uh, the country issued a release. Uh, Christia Freeland, actually, uh, a joint release was issued uh, with the European Union in, def- in defense of what they call the fundamental right of assembly by Hong Kong citizens. There's obviously the concern about the, US, uh, the relations between Canada and China, but also a great deal of interest in what's happening in Hong Kong and what the end result might be. Joining us to talk about this is Charles Burton, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Brock University, uh, expertise in comparative politics, government policies of China and Canada-China relations. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. I think uh, we could best describe Canada-China relations right now as rather acrimonious for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, Ms. Freeland's comments, however well-intentioned and correct they might have been, certainly aren't going to do anything to help that. Well, I mean, I think this is mostly about Hong Kong and our concern over the 300,000 Canadian citizens uh, currently resident in Hong Kong and the large number of Canadians who have been arrested uh, as a result of the um, of the demonstrations. Um, you, you know, it, obviously it won't, uh, it won't endear the Chinese to us that, that Ms. Freeland has pointed out that the, that the joint declaration that defined how Hong Kong was to be run until 2047, which was the basis for Britain handing Hong Kong uh, back to Chinese sovereignty in 1997, uh, guarantees certain freedoms, including the the right of assembly, and uh, and she also suggested that the uh, that the that the Chinese authorities should should abide by um, normal practices in terms of addressing um, demonstrations. I think the UN has suggested that uh, some of the Hong Kong police tactics of releasing uh, tear gas in enclosed spaces is in violation of the uh, of the standards for this kind of uh, weapon. So, you know, there are a lot of things to talk about there. Uh, I think that a lot of people in Canada, including the close to 300,000 Canadians of Hong Kong origin, wanted to see our government um, not stand idly by as this uh, terrible situation is now into its eleventh uh, week. Charles, maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking about the way it's supposed to be, as you mentioned, uh, from 1997, uh, when they were no longer, of course, a, a British uh, protectorate. Uh, there was supposed to be a, a, a semi-autonomous relationship between mainland China and what was going on in Hong Kong. Has has that deteriorated? And if so, how much? Yes, I mean when the um, when the in 1984 when Deng Xiaoping and Margaret Thatcher worked out the basis for the reversion of of Hong Kong, a British colony, uh, since 1842 um, to Chinese sovereignty in 1997, they had uh, some principles. One was that uh, Hong Kong people would con- would rule Hong Kong, so it wouldn't be the mainland sending in governors as the British had to rule Hong Kong, but that Hong Kong would have that uh, political autonomy. Uh, secondly, it would be one country, two systems, that Hong Kong would be allowed to maintain its uh, independent judiciary, freedom of expression, and um, market-based economy that's quite different from the um, one-party authoritarian rule of the Chinese Communist Party in, in mainland China. 
and finally that there would be no change for 50 years. So that was the deal. Um, it uh, it has not been maintained. Um, China announced about five years ago that the promised free and fair um, universal suffrage election for the chief executive of Hong Kong that were scheduled to to come into play 10 years after reversion in 2017 wouldn't be happening. That led to 79 days of demonstrations in 2014 called the Umbrella Movement. Um, didn't lead to any change. And now we have the situation where more recently the Chinese have proposed that that persons in Hong Kong would be freely subject to extradition to China. So this puts people in Hong Kong who speak out um, for democracy and against the Chinese government possibly being sent to China on spurious charges uh, to face uh, Chinese justice, which lacks due process of law, has pervasive use of torture and interrogation, and has the highest rate of uh, the death penalty of all other, more than all other countries of the world combined. So, you know, certainly the government of China would like to integrate Hong Kong into mainland China, and, and they don't seem to want to maintain this uh, commitment to 2047, which is why you're seeing these enormous numbers of people out dem- demonstrating. You know, out of a population of 7 million uh, in June, we saw close to 2 million on the streets. And on Sunday, it was uh, 1.7 million. So that's a very, very large portion of the of the Hong Kong population that are sufficiently dissatisfied with the management of Hong Kong that they're prepared to take the risks and and uh, and go out there to show some people power in hope that uh, the Chinese government will back off their um, their repudiation of the agreement. Charles, when the the elections were cancelled uh, for 2017, did the Chinese government try to justify that, or did they just announce that they they're not going to have them? Well, they've declared the joint declaration as a historical document. Yeah. Um, so they, the Chinese government no longer feels bound by it, and certainly they don't think that Britain should be involved in in intervening in what appears to be a violation of this international agreement. It was uh, at the request of the Chinese and British governments. The government of Canada also endorsed the uh, joint declaration when it was lodged with the UN. So from that point of view, we should still have some kind of stake in how things are going in Hong Kong if the Canadian government feels that the uh, agreement is not being fulfilled as promised. But the Chinese government, as you pointed out in your introduction, have very firmly uh, condemned any Canadian statements on Hong Kong whatsoever, um, even though our statements really are are more or less um, assertions of universal principles and and are standing up for the rules-based international order. The suggestion that we're meddling or interfering in Hong Kong is a bit over the mark as uh, Canada's capacity to meddle or interfere in Hong Kong is pretty limited. There's another element to this, too, that uh, I want to make sure our listeners are aware of, too. We're talking about the relationship, obviously, between the Hong Kong citizenry and and the Chinese government, and, of course, that's where an awful lot of their anger and angst is directed, but also at at Hong Kong authorities as well. The the Hong Kong, uh, the politicians and, of course, the police in Hong Kong uh, are very much part of this, and and we've seen the reaction by police as a result. You talked about some of the violent activity and some of the arrests that have been uh, enacted already. This is somewhat problematic, and it seems to be spinning out of control at this stage. Well, certainly the the um, Hong Kong protesters would like to have the government of Hong Kong reverse its designation of the protests as a riot, because rioting under Hong Kong law is punishable by 10-year imprisonment. 
and they would like to see, um, uh, um, you know, a, a clear statement that the extradition law is is not going to be uh, revived, and they'd like to see an investigation of the police action against the demonstrators, which they see as excessive. The Chinese government, I, I was watching the Chinese national TV news uh, this morning, which is you know, the broadcast from today, tonight in Chinese time, and they stress in, in that and in their condemnation uh, the violence of the demonstrators, including the uh, their holding of two um, Chinese citizens at the airport um, and some windows that have been broken and, and uh, some spraying of ink on the Chinese national crest, which is over the Beijing representative office in, in Hong Kong, and one incident where the flag of the People's Republic of China was torn down and thrown into the sea. But these are relatively minor, you know, the brutality on the side of the protesters or the violence is, I think, a relatively minor faction. I mean, with the recent 1.7 million strong protests, the police didn't have to use any tear gas whatsoever. It was a peaceful movement, and I think that um, most people in Hong Kong don't support any extreme elements that that are engaging in destruction of property or or uh, or violence. So, you know, the the Chinese rhetoric is quite different from the from the situation on the ground. The Chinese government has not acknowledged that 1.7 million people took to the streets. They focus more on some much smaller demonstrations that have occurred in Hong Kong and and throughout the world, including Canada, that that express support for the Chinese government and urge a return to um, to uh, stability and uh, nonviolence in Hong Kong, as they put it. But there were some rumors, pretty strong rumors, I guess, going around last week that uh, the Chinese government was considering military action uh, to quell the uh, the insurrection, as it were. Is there any any evidence that that's going to happen? Well, uh, certainly there have been some. Um, exercises by the People's Armed Police um, just north of Hong Kong in Shenzhen, um, and, a, and a lot of military-type vehicles that have been sent down that could potentially, in very short order, cross the border into Hong Kong to put down the, the demonstration through the use of military violence. Um, we send no indication that that's anything but an attempt to intimidate the protesters um, we haven't we haven't got any indications that they actually plan to cross over the border, but it's always there, and there are um, over five thousand People's Liberation Army troops stationed inside Hong Kong on Hong Kong Island, in what was the former British garrison. So far, they've stayed uh, in the barracks, but you know the potential for them to come out at any time uh, with significant weaponry and uh, suppress the demonstration and. And, and enforce martial law in Hong Kong is always a possibility. But uh, the consequences for Hong Kong and for China of doing that are, are pretty enormous. And so I think the Chinese government would really need some very serious pretext to do that, such as serious property damage, you know, like burning down the, the Chinese government representative office in Hong Kong or, or assassination or kidnapping of senior Hong Kong or Chinese officials or, you know, something... something very uh, provocative that would justify the enormous opprobrium that would occur if the if the Chinese government uh, decided to engage in military action, and that would also likely destroy Hong Kong as a major world financial capital, because uh, if there was martial law, I think the foreign firms would decamp to other places like Singapore, 
and uh, people with the ability to leave Hong Kong, including the 300,000 Canadian passport holders, would probably leave, which would then devastate normal economic activity in that uh, vibrant place. So I think it's unlikely at this time, but, um, you know, this thing's been going on for a long time. China's concerned about disruption of their celebration of the 70th anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China, which comes up on October the 1st. So we can't rule out this thing ending tragically with violence and death. It's, it's, the possibility is there. And, and not without precedent. I mean, through history, even recent history, 1968 Czechoslovakia, Crimea more recently, and, you know, where the insurrection and all of a sudden, well, in both cases, that was the Russian army that just showed up. Uh, but the reaction, and there was a big pushback, of course, when, when those in, in incidents happened, but the reaction it was, was predicated on the fact that the U.S. government was going to be the, the watchdog here. That doesn't seem to be the case on the international scene anymore. No, and I mean, you know, the U.S. government recognizes that Hong Kong is part of sovereign Chinese territory, so it, it you know, it would be hard to describe it as an invasion scenario. Um, one incident that's often compared is the 1989 Beijing democracy movement, which was suppressed through tanks with very large loss of life and and then a, a, a terribly uh, tense diplomatic situation as as foreign businesses and diplomatic representatives fled China and uh, and relations were were suspended by many countries for for quite a period afterwards. Um, I think that uh, the Chinese government has more sophisticated means to put down these demonstrations than they did in, in 1989 and, and are better prepared to do so. And certainly the, the Chinese government, when there are these kinds of protests inside China, inside the mainland of China, uh, put them down with, uh, with brutality and the use of armed police uh, on a regular basis. So um, you, you know, this kind of thing can can uh, is part of how China deals with um, dissent and challenges to the regime. And the fact that the Hong Kong um, demonstrators have such a, a principled case here, and the idea that China cannot respond to them in a meaningful way without causing a demonstration effect inside China that could lead to instability there, suggests that unless the the demonstrators lose their enthusiasm and the thing just peters out as it did in 2014, that the only answer may be through the use of, of some sort of force to uh, to stop it. And not much likelihood then of negotiation? I mean, you know, it just is there is there a symbolic move the Chinese government could make here, the, the removal of Carrie Lam as, as the leader in Hong Kong, anything like that? Uh, obviously, I think, you know, obviously they'd like to see the reinstitution of the election and the free elections. I don't know if the Chinese government's going to go there, but uh, how do you, is there any attempt at all to try to bring these two sides together? Or is, as you just mentioned, is China just waiting this out? Well, I think, uh, you know, looking at the Chinese official media, as I have been, um, most of it is focused on the, um, you know, that the demonstrators are a small group that don't represent most of Hong Kong people, that they're violent and that they are being um, supported by um, hostile foreign forces, particularly the United States, which, you know, for which there is really no, no evidence. I mean, certainly the Hong Kong um, protesters have been seeking support abroad. They've been demonstrating abroad. They've been putting advertisements in uh, uh, major Canadian newspapers and newspapers around the world calling for international support. So, the Chinese government um, has basis for thinking that that there is uh, a foreign element here, but. I think the the demonstrations are really about 
um, Hong Kong people being dissatisfied with the Chinese government's uh, management of the one country, two systems, uh, more than anything else, and the other stuff really isn't um, isn't that uh, isn't that significant. So I. Uh, I think in 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 general, I mean, the Chinese government could be doing things. They could, Ms. Lam could resign. That would be uh, probably a good step, uh, first of all. And the Chinese government could promise an investigation of the um, of the police. Although up to now, um, the official propaganda has been very supportive of the Hong Kong police, talking about how professional they are. Um, I don't think that the uh, idea of universal suffrage election for the CEO of Hong Kong is likely because if they allow that in Hong Kong, you know, the idea of the Chinese Communist Party allowing the people to freely elect leaders would be something that could have quite an impact inside China. Of course, people in China would very much like the same sort of um, democratic rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and there could be, uh, but there could be other other things done to try and uh, reinforce the one country, two systems. China has promised that there would be uh, discussions and revisions um, once things settle down, um, I think the protesters are skeptical that if they if they cease to protest, that the Chinese government will, in fact, fulfill their their request. But uh, you know, if the Chinese government did make some conciliatory gestures, and the and the movement seemed to be losing some of its steam, that could resolve the issue. The question is, uh, how firm is the Chinese government in maintaining face and and their honor in this matter and to what extent are they? Do they have the capability to be conciliatory and understanding of the concerns of of people in Hong Kong? Well, the world is watching, and certainly we'd like to see some resolution to this, and perhaps some progress too. Charles, always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for the time today. Good to speak with you. Take care. It's uh, Charles Burton, of course, uh, from Brock University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Environmental Defense, uh, an organization that has uh, been a strong voice, of course, about having the, the debate about things like climate change and uh, and basically how we deal with our environment. Uh, and there's an announcement made by the provincial government here in Ontario just a, a couple of days ago that uh, uh, as of 2025, that is, Ontario's Blue Box program will be the responsibility of product manufacturers, not the province. Ontario government said this is going to reduce waste and save millions of dollars for municipalities. I also want to get into uh, a more recent study about uh, an, an edict that just came down uh, from Elections Canada that's going to have an impact on groups like environmental defense. Joining us in the conversation about both these items is uh, Keith Brooks. Keith is the uh, campaign director for environmental defense. Uh, Keith, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Good morning. Let me ask you, let's do the blue box thing first, and then we'll get into the Elections Canada uh, announcement from just the other day. Uh I mean, every time the government makes an announcement, it's all, all supposed to be great for us all the time, etc. But uh, it seems as if they might have hit the right chord on this one, because one of the biggest complaints we've always had about recycling is the responsibility of the product manufacturers. And the, this policy seems to put the onus on them. How do your group feel about that? Yeah, we, we support this move. We actually applauded the government for moving forward and transferring the responsibility to the to the producers it's really important for a number of reasons. One, it takes the burden off of, of taxpayers. Uh, and, and, and more importantly, so producers are paying for this, but more importantly, it closes the loop. Uh, and I mean in terms of information. Right now, people can make some kind of packaging product. They can sell it on the store, and there's no incentive for them to think, for them to design that product to be recyclable or for them to think about whether or not there are systems in place that can make sure that it does get recycled. Now, we make producers responsible. We set high targets, and we hold them to those targets. 
that changes, right? Now they're going to design things that are recyclable, and they're going to make sure there are systems in place to make sure that those things do get recycled. And so they close this loop right now. There's just no incentive right now. That's why our recycling is failing. 9% of Canadians' plastics get recycled, only 9%. This needs to improve EPR, so this extended producer responsibility, making the manufacturers responsible, is a step in the right direction. What about compliance? So what do you anticipate, Keith? Well, that's going to be a big hurdle, and we haven't talked about compliance yet, and, and that's where some other jurisdictions that have moved to EPR are falling short. So if, they, if we don't, we have to do a few things. One, we hold producers responsible. Two, we set really high targets. We need to be moving to zero waste uh, as soon as we can. Three, there needs to be accountability in place, so we're tracking how well these producers are doing at meeting the targets that we set. And four, there needs to be penalties. There needs to be strong incentives in place to make sure that we actually achieve these targets. And, and so that enforcement side and, and, and the penalty side is going to be really important. Yeah, anytime we're going to talk about uh, enforcement and about compliance, obviously you have to get into that whole realm of uh, the carrot or the stick, or is it going to be a combination of? Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, we have to make this, you know, an economic uh, incentive, right? I mean, this is about closing that information loop so that people are designing things uh, to be recycled. Because right now, these companies are making a lot of money, right? They're producing plastics, they're selling products, uh, but they're not responsible for the, what happens to those products after they, 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 they go off the shelves. So uh, we want to make them responsible, internalize those costs, change the incentive structure, and, and that has to mean make, we make the economics work. So it has to be more uh, affordable. It has to be, make better economic sense to recycle the product than it does to, to, uh, to, hit, to pay the penalty, basically. So it has to be high. Keith, what kind of reaction are you getting from uh, the, the the business world right now? You invariably, when governments try to impose things like this, they, you know the the hue and cry is usually it's going to cut into our powerful margin. Uh, we can't afford to do this sort of thing. And time and time again, obviously, you know the government will back off on this a little bit. But is is business going to move into this? I mean, are they on side with this? They they are on side with this. Yeah, most of the producers uh, have been advocating for this for a long time. I mean the. Uh, for their side, what they say is, you know, you tell us what to do, tell us how high a target to reach, and we'll we'll figure out how to do it. So the producers actually want the control. They think that they can be more efficient in the systems that they set up, and it's going to be more cost-effective and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think there's still going to be a bit of a fight over over the targets, right, of like mm-hmm. how, how, how high do we want the recycling rate to be. Uh, I think that we're probably going to ask for it to be higher than some of the producers would like. All right, uh, and we're hoping that this thing rolls out. We have mentioned already that the government's saying by 2025 they want to uh, have this done. Um, is this going to be rolled in, uh, in in phases, or is this just, just going to be cold turkey? That's when we do it. Yeah, they've, they've, they've laid out how it's going to be phased, and basically there's a few steps. But, you know, right now there are a bunch of contracts in place. Uh, municipalities have facilities that they manage. And those things have to be kind of wound down and transitioned over to the, to the producers. So there's a bunch of steps that they've laid out so that it kind of happens seamlessly. You know, hopefully for most people in Ontario, our, our practice of putting stuff in the blue bin is not going to change a lot. We're probably not going to notice it uh, very much. Although what I hope does happen is that actually we end up with fewer, you know, different kinds of things uh, on the shelves. We end up with less re- non-recyclable packaging. And we end up actually all knowing what is going to go into our blue bins and all putting it in there. That's one thing they said they're going to do is they're going to harmonize it across the province. Because right now, it's a patchwork, depending on whether you're in Hamilton or Toronto or Oshawa or wherever mm-hmm. you are. What goes in that bin is totally different. So it's going to be harmonized. It should, it should get simpler and easier for us 
to do our part on recycling. Good. Well, it sounds like a great idea. And like you say, the devil's in the details, and we'll get those sooner than later, I hope. All right, let's let's get into this other subject. What in heaven's name was Elections Canada thinking when they came up with this edict over the weekend? Uh, maybe you could explain to our listeners exactly what they've said and the implications. Well, what they've said is that there are they put into place some new rules around election advertising, uh, basically so that anybody that's a third party that's you know trying to advertise during election period, they have to register with Elections Canada if they're going to spend more than $500. So that's quite a small amount of money, actually. And then there's another category of, of, of advertising called uh, a partisan advertising. And during the writ period, which is you know the moment when the government says we're headed to the election and, and government kind of rises and dissolves and we get into the real election period, during that period, if you're talking about an issue that is clearly associated with one party, uh, and other parties have a different position on that, that becomes partisan uh, advertising, partisan activity. So the issue that's come up here is climate change. We have the People's Party, Maxime Bernier's party, uh, has said climate change isn't real, and, and whereas every other party says that it is, because we know that it is. Uh, but because there's a, a, a distinction between the parties of, on that issue, it, it now will become a partisan issue during the election period, which means the charities who can't do any partisan activity will not be able to speak about it. Uh, or lose their charitable status. That seemed to be the threat that was implied. Yeah, I think that's that's right. We can't do partisan activity, and if there was a charge that we were doing partisan activity, uh, that we, we, we could lose our charitable status. That's, that is right. But I, I can't understand the, the, the logic in this. Uh, the fact that, you know, Bernier and, and his party don't agree with this, and notwithstanding the evidence, and I guess obviously... Uh, you know, we, we could have that debate probably, you know, from here on in. But the the concern here is if you know this issue is going to be debated, Keith, you know, by yeah. the leaders, by just about everybody and just about every constituency in this province. But but you're not, groups like you are basically not being allowed to be a part of that discussion and that debate. Yeah, I mean, I think, so we can actually be a part of it. What we cannot do is advertising. And the thing is advertising has become very common now. If on Facebook, you know, we have... 90,000 Facebook fans, if we want even just those people that have said that they like environmental defense and they follow environmental defense, if we even want all of those people to see our posts, we have to put a little bit of money behind it. And that's just Facebook's algorithms that they've, they've set up there. So that reaching this $500 limit is really easy. And so we're kind of forbidden from doing that. And that's what, and, or even uh, certain other things, spending on, on, on staff time, setting up new websites, any of that stuff during the election period may get caught. But And I say may because no one really knows. They're brand new rules. They mm -hmm. haven't been tested. But all that said, we still can be part of it. So we can do media interviews. Like we can talk to yeah. you know radio hosts and we can talk to newspapers and we could go on TV if we're asked to come talk about these issues. We're going to have to be careful to be nonpartisan, but we're allowed to do that. We can also write opinion pieces and publish them. We can still write blog posts. We can still do things. We just can't do you know what advertising is. But the, but the advertising, the definition of advertising it's a bit unclear, uh, it's untested, and also the limit on spending is really low. But, and again, just so our listeners understand uh, wh where these guys are going on this, uh, had you done a, a, an ad campaign, an information campaign, as you have done in the past, and talked about the effects of climate change, 
I, yeah. I, 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 it boggles the imagination that Elections Canada would consider that to be a partisan issue, uh, given the realities of, of the flooding, the fires, the, the temperature increases, the number of other things that we've seen here, the rising Great Lakes levels, and yeah. on and on it goes. Uh, it's, it's an issue that there may be some discrepancy on. I mean, as you mentioned, all the other political parties have some kind of, of plank in their platform about climate change. It varies dramatically, of course, from party to party in some instances, but it's there. And, and one guy comes along and says, well, I don't believe that. That basically says, okay, that you're the ones that are being penalized for that. Yeah, well, we're all being penalized by it because you're right. It's going to be a major issue during the election. The parties have a, a bunch of different positions on climate change and what they would do about it. There's only one party that says it's not real and we're not going to do anything about it. But the differences between the other parties are important. And, and Canadians have said climate change is the key issue for them in this election, that they're going to go and they're going to vote, you know, and they're going to be thinking about climate change at that time. They need to have access to the information to understand what the different parties have said they will do about climate change so they can vote, you know, to deal with the issue. But but now their ability to get that information is limited, and that means that Canada's ability to fight climate change is going to be a little bit impacted by this. It, it's, it's a disservice to all of us. Well, it is, because, I mean, don't we always advocate for an informed uh, voting public when it comes to elections, and especially when it comes to debates on issues like this? And, uh, you know, how are we going to get that information if they basically kind of tied one hand behind your back? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I hope that, you know, the media, like like yourself, that, you know, you guys can help get that information out there and, and help uh, uh, voters understand uh, what, where the different parties stand on these issues. Uh, and maybe maybe the fact that this story has come out and we know now that environmental organizations' hands are tied, then, you know, the media will, will pick up that uh, that mantle, right? Well, I'm just wondering if this is uh, the first of, of, of a number of controversial steps. I mean, uh, you know, if, if another political leader decides that they don't believe in such and such an issue, does Elections Canada weigh in on that and say, well, I guess, uh, you know, we're going to have to eliminate or at least reduce uh, some of the, the information that's going to be forthcoming on that issue, too? I mean, where do you draw the line here? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, and you, uh, only people at Elections Canada would, would know that. But like I say, it's new rules, so... We were trying to understand, you know, whether uh, what we could do and could not do during the election period. And so we did reach out to Elections Canada and ask for clarification. And we were testing the waters and said, oh, also, can we talk about carbon pricing, for example? And they said, well, clearly no, because this has become a, a divisive uh, wedge issue between the parties, right? Some are supporting carbon pricing and carbon taxes and some are opposed. And so that was clear. And then we kept, you know, testing, well, can we talk about climate change? And, and they said, uh, thinking about it, actually, no, this has become a partisan issue, which is, in our minds, just, I mean, it's, 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 it's very problematic because we know climate change is real. Canadians know that it's real. Uh, like you said, there's, there's floods, there's fires, there's all kinds of impacts happening uh, because, because of climate change. Um, but in, I mean, I guess, you know, to the question of are they going to weigh in on other issues, it, it really depends, I suppose. If you, if you ask them, they might say, yeah, that might be partisan you know, err on the side of caution. You know, the, the, the sad part about this is, as, as you just mentioned, on this particular date, in this campaign heading into this election, this is the first time that I, I get the sense anyway that the Canadian population en masse is, is taking a keener interest in environmental issues. I mean, there's always been people that have, have, have you know, talked about this and preached about this and said we have to do a better job. And we kind of said, yeah, but you know what, the economy's important and this is important and, you know, build... But but you're right. This is the first time that they've actually looked at climate change, and, and the majority of Canadians are saying this matters to us, and it's going to be a key issue in this election campaign. Yeah, uh, 
I, I would agree, and that's what the polling tells us, too, that Canadians are more concerned now than ever before about the environment, and that Canadians know that there's an important choice ahead of them with this federal election, that we can choose to vote in a government that's going to take action on environmental issues, or we could choose to vote in a government that's not going to do that. And, and uh, you know, so it's, it's really important, and I think people are feeling the impacts of climate change. They're seeing the impacts of climate change. You know, they, they, they know about the fires and the floods and, and the heat wave. Uh, in, in, in Europe and, and all of these things, right? And there's not just, I guess, climate change, there's other issues too, like like plastics and fresh water and et cetera. So the environment is uh, of tremendous importance right now, and it will be of importance during this election. Uh, and Canadians need to know where the parties stand. Um, you know, they can come to our website and find it there, but they're not gonna, we're not going to be able to be running an awareness campaign to, to help people kind of, kind of, you know, raise the salience of the issues and to really... Uh, engage in that during the election period. Yeah, it's got to be kind of a gratifying time for guys uh, like yourselves, Keith, at, uh, at Environmental Defense, uh, because you've been talking about this for the longest time right now, and, and I, you know, anytime you're advocating for something, you're always wondering, is it resonating with people? Yeah. And, and these numbers indicate that, hey, they're listening, uh, they're getting it, and, and maybe they're doing their own research on this, or at least they're, they're, they're sharing your information that, that you put out there at the same time, and it is starting to resonate with the population right now. This is This is a pivotal time, isn't it? Yes, it is a pivotal time. I, I don't know that we're, we're kind of celebrating yet, though, to be honest. I mean, one, the issues, you know, uh, are getting only worse. And two, some recent elections have not exactly put uh, pro-environmental governments into power in certain provincial elections, even uh, one here in Ontario, right? The new government yeah. of Ontario is, 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 well, one of the first things they did was to cancel the cap-and-trade program, so our, our form of carbon pricing, and they've done a number of other anti-environmental things. So, you know, this is this election, federal election, will be a bit of a test. Are we, is Canada ready to, you know, face up to environmental challenges and to elect a government that will fight on those issues? Uh, I sure as heck hope that we are. Well, I mean, the example I used was uh, was from the premier here in Ontario when Doug Ford decided he was going to reduce the funding for the flood control. Uh, conservation authorities a number. Then the very next week, of course, he was touring flooding areas in Muskoka and up in the Ottawa Valley. Uh, and, and nobody seemed, well, at least nobody in his party seemed to connect the dots there. But uh, I guess the evidence is, is self-evident to most of us anyway. And uh, it's, it's going to be debated. I guess that's the takeaway we have from this. You know that the other leaders and the other party members are going to have a debate. I hope a healthy and informed debate about climate change. So whether Mr. Bernier wants to include it in his platform or not is his business, I suppose. But Canadians are going to hear about this an awful lot, and we've got some some very important choices to make here. Yeah, I would agree. Keith, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, my pleasure as well. Take care. Keith Brooks is the campaign director for Environmental Defense. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.